Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Daryl Porter. Daryl is the founder and CEO of San Francisco-based Cellevolve. This is a different kind of cell therapy company than the ones you may have heard about. Most startups are all about the R&D in their early days. Traditionally, many haven't built up commercial capabilities in the early days for one big reason. They don't have anything to sell right away. They have tended to figure that commercial strategy was something to figure out later, like in late stage clinical development, or sometimes on the eve of filing for new product approval with the FDA, or maybe never if they end up selling the company to some big commercial operator. Cellevolve was born of the idea that this isn't necessarily the best way to do things anymore. Daryl's insight was that many companies need some commercial savvy, even in the early days, when critical decisions are made that can ultimately influence the success or failure of a product years down the road. Many of these companies are going to necessarily remain independent, and they need to be able to stand on their own two feet commercially. So he set out to raise some money for this concept with a virtual team of experienced cell therapy commercial hands who would then form partnerships to provide that commercial savvy to a bunch of the R&D-focused startups in cell therapy land. Late last year, the company raised $6 million from a group of investors that includes Resilience, the biologics manufacturing company. Cellevolve also formed a partnership with an institute in Australia to develop an off-the-shelf allogeneic T-cell therapy for progressive multifocal encephalopathy, also known as PML. Daryl comes to this entrepreneurial venture with 20 years of industry experience. He's an MD, MBA from the University of Pennsylvania and went to work at Amgen, AbbVie, Gilead, and Atara before joining this startup. He also happens to be African-American, and we talk about that at the beginning and then a little more toward the end of this conversation. Now, before we get started, do you want to raise awareness of your company with the most innovative people in biotech? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. These in-depth, engaging conversations attract an audience full of scientific entrepreneurs and venture investors on the leading edge. The audience grew by 40% last year. For more information, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. She's at stephanie.y.barnes at gmail.com. You can find her contact information on timbermanreport.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column that runs on Fridays, plus expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimbermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimbermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now, please join me and Daryl Porter on the long run. Daryl Porter, welcome to the long run. Yeah, thanks for having me, Luke. So, Daryl, as I was getting ready for this, I, I was reminded of that first time you and I talked. And I think this was maybe a year and a half ago. And the company, Cellevolve, was 
still really pretty early. Uh, but I thought, you know, here's a guy that uh, has clearly identified a market need and has a, a mix of skills that are well poised to serve this need. I'm just going to put you on my watch list <laughs> for, for, for a little while and maybe we can talk later. And it's like one of the pleasures of sticking around and doing this job for a long time is seeing actually, you know, you're, you're doing some of what you said. So uh, congratulations. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we'll get into this uh, in the latter part of the show. But uh, as you know, I like to start out with who the person is. Um, so, uh, Daryl, where are you from? I'm from Los Angeles. So I'm an, an, an Angelino, as we like to call ourselves. Uh, so I was born and raised in L.A. And um, uh, what was your family like? Were you, uh, you have siblings? I do. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the middle child. I have an older brother and a younger sister, and we're all two years apart. And what did your parents do? My mom is actually still a nurse. Uh, she works in labor and delivery and um, approaching retirement. Um, but she's been doing that for, you know, 35 years or so. And, uh, and my dad is in construction. Uh-huh. He's retired uh -huh. now, but, uh, but was in construction for many, many years. So what kinds of things were, did they emphasize or try to instill um, in you and your siblings as kids? Yeah, for, first and foremost, it was clearly education. Uh, so, you know, my mom uh, obviously got um, an advanced education beyond uh, K through 12. And just in our family writ large and in my nuclear family, education was mission critical and, and job number one. Uh, and so that was always the priority for for all of the kids. Uh-huh. And why do you think that was? Well, you know, I'm uh, as many of your viewers may not know, you know, I'm I'm African American. And so uh just given our history in this country, um, you know, education and not only African Americans, but for, for many people. Um, education is the way uh, to progress. And so our family was no exception. So that was always a big priority for us was to focus on education, not only K through 12, but also getting a college degree uh, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of schools did you attend there in Los Angeles? So I went to public school. So I'm I'm a product of the uh, L.A. Unified School District, uh, disproportionately. Um, I had a very brief stint in the Compton Public School District, but that was only for a few years in junior high school. But I spent uh, pretty much most of my time in uh, L.A. Unified. I went to high school in the Valley. Uh, for those of you that know L.A., um, the, the valley uh, is a, a fairly large region of the city, and uh, my brother and I were bused uh, from where we lived in L.A. out to the valley. We went to high school in Reseda uh, called Cleveland. Cleveland high. How long of a bus ride was this? About an hour. So uh -huh. we, yeah, so we got up very early, at least for, you know, for a high school kid. Um, so we got to the bus stop at about 630 in the morning. Okay, now, um, what, was this a integrated school that you were going to, or what was the mix? Yeah, yeah, no, it was an integrated school. At the time, Reseda was, you know, disproportionately 
a middle class, you know, primarily white community. Uh, but there were a large number of students that were bused from different parts of the city. And so the school was probably 60 percent white and 40 percent other. OK, OK. So what kinds of subjects uh, captured your interest as a kid, either, you know, junior high or high school? Yeah, it was uh, I was always one of uh, a scientifically inclined student. I always liked math, uh, loved biology and the sciences in general. And so from day one, and this was even going back to my elementary school, that was something that always fascinated me. Math and science. Do you remember it's a teacher or I don't know, uh you know, a, a movie or documentary or book or something that kind of just like uh, spoke to you? Yeah, it's actually an interesting uh, story. So I, and we'll, we'll probably touch on this a bit later. But um, I had a teacher. Her name was Miss Russell in elementary school. And her husband was an aeronautical engineer and worked on the space shuttle. So uh, for those of you, I'm dating myself a little bit, but um, Southern California was obviously one of the core centers for aerospace, um, still remains so, but less so today. But at that time, you know, that's what that was the hub uh, for aerospace in uh, in our country. And so there were many people around us who worked in that business. And I had a teacher whose husband was an engineer and he used to come and talk to the class, you know, talk about kind of his day-to-day life uh, professionally. And that really caught my interest. And so my first career objective was to actually be an aeronautical engineer. Well, that's really interesting. Those influences that occur to us early because of the environment that we're in, you know, aeronautical engineering. I mean, these are you know, jobs that require, you know, a lot of science and math. Um, yep. And, um, you know, you're building interesting things. And, you know, those are good jobs. Um, whoever that guy was that came there, I mean, I think that would have been <laughs> like evident, like that's better than working at McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So um, how did you decide to become a doctor? Is this coming back a little bit? So your, your mom's uh, experience in healthcare? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's right. So, you know, of course, with the scientific aptitude and, and interest combined with the exposure that I had to healthcare and, and physicians through my mother's experience, uh, we used to, my brother and I in particular, used to visit my mom at work all the time. Um, she would occasionally let us borrow her car when we got our driver's license, so we had to pick her up. Um, and so we got a lot of exposure to the practice of medicine, to nurses and physicians. And, you know, throughout the years, I started to see a bit more of things that interested me in terms of caring for patients and, you know, the combination of, of what is now deemed as a human right uh, and science that really started to pique my curiosity more towards high school. Uh, is when I started to lean in that direction. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so uh, high school, you're starting to think healthcare, doctor. Um, uh, where'd you go to uh, to get your undergrad? Now, I don't want to go through like your whole background because I know you've yeah. been a lot of places and accumulated <laughs> a, lot of, a, a lot of degrees, but let's, yeah. let's, uh, where'd you go first? Yeah, yeah, so UCLA. Um, so I, I stayed local. 
Um, although it felt like I was in a completely different state, um, I went from one side of the city to the other, but, uh, but I stayed local. So I went to UCLA undergrad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, was it pre-med early on? Is that, uh, did yep. you get on that track? Yeah. Pre-med early on, I majored in, um, at the time was called psychobiology, uh, but it's effectively neuroscience. Uh, and so I was pre-med from, uh, from day one. Okay. Okay. And then how did you end up going to Penn? Yeah, it's um interesting story. So I, um, this will, again, we'll touch on this in a moment, but I started to develop this interest in the business of medicine. At the time, I, I wouldn't have called it that, but that's essentially what it was. And so I was looking into schools that had combined degrees. Um, so first and foremost, they had to have a business school and a medical school, and, and not all do, um, number one. But then I also wanted to find schools that had some level of coordination between the two programs. And, and that's where Penn really bubbled up to the top. Huh. So why do you think you, you sought out that combination? Because not a lot of doctors do. <laughs> and frankly, you know, the stereotype <laughs> about doctors is, you know, they're not very good at business generally. Yeah, no, that's right. You know, for me, it was it was an interest that started to bubble up in college, just what I would call just the interests of capitalism and corporations and business in general. And, you know, obviously I was pursuing medicine as a career, but I did have this side interest, if you will. And so as I started to advance in undergrad, you know, I was thinking, hey, it would be wonderful if I could find a way to combine the two passions. And at the time, I thought I would be what was classic then was a physician manager. So I thought I would practice medicine and possibly have some administrative or managerial role in a hospital or a health system of some sort. And so that's where the idea started. Okay. Now, was this a tr like a truly integrated program where you could take those classes concurrently or did you have to get the MD first and then follow up for a year and a half or two to get the MBA? No, no, it was the former. So that that was one of the attractions of Penn. And, you know, they have an office that's dedicated to dual degree students. Uh, Penn is probably, if not the leading program and uh, a quick commercial for Penn, right? But if, if it's not the leading program, it has to be one of the top where they have medical students who pursue other degrees. And, you know, PhDs obviously is the classic one with the medical scholars um, or MSTP program. But then there are a lot of folks like myself that go to Wharton or go to law school or frankly, any other PhD. So, so that was a thing at Penn and remains old today. So, so they dedicated staff to helping students navigate the com combinations. This sounds really hard and demanding. I mean, isn't medical school hard enough? <laughs> Can you say a little <laughs> bit about what, what, what those years were like? Yeah, no, it, it definitely, uh, it was hard, but I actually really enjoyed the differences. And, you know, clearly medical school is very different from business school. The student body is very different and have different interests, you know, have different experiences. 
And frankly, I enjoy those varieties, right? I just like the fact that my business school classmates were, you know, had life experience. Many of them had worked professionally, uh, were more what I would call global citizens uh, than my, my typical medical school classmate. You know, as, as you know, medical school, you typically go right from undergrad to graduate school. And so most of us had never had professional jobs, which was a stark contrast to my business school classmates. So they were just more worldly and had more experience uh, in a variety of different arenas of life. And I love that. I love the fact that they were so different compared to my other classmates. And so I'd like bouncing back and forth between the two. Okay. Maybe it even gives you, you know, a little bit of a break, like, you know, uh, to, to kind of switch gears mentally. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'll give you one quick example. So, um, and this is a classic difference between uh, your classic MBA and, and scientific folks. Um, the business school trains you how to present, right? All the way from slides to, you know, how to facilitate a presentation and walk through it. Like that's, you know, how you get trained from the very beginning. And in medical school, they never teach you that stuff, right? Despite you presenting quite often, whether it be to patients at the bedside or given a scientific presentation. And so I used to take a lot of the things I learned from business school and I would teach my classmates in medical school. So I would say, hey, look, this is what I learned on how to give a good presentation. And then I would show them what I learned in business school and back and forth. So I, I yeah. always enjoy doing that. And it, and it's not BS. Like you really need to correct. know how to do this if you want that's to be correct. effective. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So uh, you, you get your, your combined degree and gosh, you're probably thinking, you know, you could do a lot of different things with this. I, I can think of a bunch. What, what did you decide to do? So I decided to join McKinsey and Company uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, after, as you alluded to, after lots of hand wringing and discussions and thinking, uh, I decided to join McKinsey. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, what was the hand wringing about? Um, about practicing. So I, I had a lot of folks that were, my parents included, um, but a lot of people giving me advice, a lot of folks pushing me, frankly, that, hey, you know, you have to practice, you have to do your residency, and, you know, you could always go back to business if you really wanted to, but, you know, you, you have to practice medicine. And um, so I went that, from, sorry. I mean, that's because, I mean, you got this valuable training. Right. And yeah. it's like, you know, noble work in yeah. medicine, like pay, doctor patient relationships, helping people one at a time. I mean, that's um, absolutely. Absolutely. No. So it, it was it, it for sure. Um, you know, it was an important point of view and uh, a set of advice, if you will, I got from a lot of folks. And, and so I struggled with it early on. Uh, when I was thinking about what to do next. Uh, but I, I remember one piece of advice that I got, which is really what pushed me to go to McKinsey at the end of the day was, this is from a physician uh, who had actually followed a sim somewhat an analogous path to me in the sense that this person had a dual degree and decided to go into management. Um, she worked for um, Wharton at the time, but ended up joining the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. 
And the, the point there was, hey, if you are passionate about the combination of business and medicine, you should do that yesterday. Don't wait. Don't take your time. You need to get going with whatever your passion is right now. And she told me that a lot of folks will tell you, oh, you need to practice as they were. Um, but she said, look, you need to do what you love. And ultimately, that was the final piece of advice that guided me to join McKinsey. So you go to McKinsey. It looks like this is like, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, The Human Genome Project's all over the news. A lot of things are happening. Biotech is like becoming more of a thing. Um, Companies growing up. Um, What kind of, uh, just real quick, what kind of experiences were you exposed to there at McKinsey that kind of opened your eyes to what was out there in industry? Yeah, I um, so disproportionately, I worked in biopharma. Uh, I spent a little time on the healthcare provider side. Um, I worked for a few medical device companies, but the overwhelming majority of my projects were biopharma. And I worked across the world. So I worked in Japan, I worked in Europe, uh, and all across the US as well, um, and both big and small. Wow. So you're really uh, sampling from a whole lot of experiences by this point, um, you know, figuring out what you really want to do. How did you end up going uh, on the the track that, I mean, really you've been on ever since, which uh, in um, commercialization of biopharma? Yeah. So I, um, so I ended up, you know, like, like many McKinsey consultants, you kind of get to a point um, a few years into your your experience there where you need to decide whether you want to pursue the partner track or, or leave. And, you know, I chose to leave, obviously. And what I wanted to do was continue in this, this vein of the combination of the business of medicine. And one obvious entry point was corporate strategy or business development, which is what I did. So I joined corporate development out of McKinsey uh, at Amgen. And okay. it was so exactly we, we, as, as I described. So, okay. So I should make a finer point. It, start, it started in corporate development before you, you, you got into more of the sales and marketing, like classical commercialization. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Okay. Um, so what, um, what did you learn? What were the, your big experiences there at Amgen? Yeah, so I um, uh, so I worked on, and this will date me for sure. Um, I had the good fortune of joining Amgen in corporate development right at the time when the idea of buying Immunex emerged. Oh so, wow! Well, <laughs> you know, this is something we have in common because that's what <laughs> I, I covered Immunex for the Seattle Times. That's how I got started covering this oh. industry. So, so yes, we we have this shared experience twenty years ago. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I I worked on that acquisition from uh, idea to post merger integration. So that was my job essentially for two years. Yeah, biggest biotech merger ever at the time. You know, originally yeah. valued at sixteen billion, ended up being about ten billion. But that's Absolutely. where Amgen got it, got Enbrel, yeah. and um, you know, a number of other uh, uh, drugs. Denosumab came later, and, and I think another one that just got approved. So, yeah, uh, that's right. That was a big, big deal. It was a big um, deal, and and I just to, to say your point about how this merger of you call it business and medicine and my commercial interests. 
it really started during that acquisition and merger because I was at the time I had worked on several projects in immunology at McKinsey prior to joining Amgen. So when I joined Amgen, I had this body of knowledge on this emerging field of immunology and the TNF inhibitors, right? And rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the unique positions and perspectives I had during that entire process was really being able to articulate the business opportunity of this new therapeutic. And so I could talk to what the benefit and the data was from a patient perspective and the mechanism of action. And I could also speak in the very same conversation about the business opportunity, the pricing power, the number of patients that this may affect, ultimately what the revenue forecast could look like. And so I could always go between those two topics And that was a very, very unique capability at that time, less so today, obviously. But at that time, that was a more unique perspective. And so that was recognized very early on with a lot of the the powers that be at Amgen at that time. It's like being bilingual. (laughs) You you can go back and forth from one meeting to another and speak everybody's language. and, and yep. Uh, and, and being a physician, of course, like, you, you know, um, it's nice to when you have treatments that really actually help the patient. And, you know, Enbrel, I mean, my God, I interviewed pay- people who said, you know, this drug gave me my life back. I, I remember when people would say things like that, like I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so fatigued. My joints hurt so bad. I took this drug and now I can go to work and I can pick up my daughter. And <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't happen every day. That, that's pretty exciting to be a part of and to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So you, it sounds like, I mean, you caught the bug at Amgen kind of like, uh, like I did for covering this stuff. Um, you're there for a few years. Um, what was your next stop? Uh, so I joined at the time Abbott Laboratories, now AbbVie. And uh-huh. uh, so now I'm actually a sales and marketing executive. So I was general manager of the renal care division for the U.S. Uh, at Abbott Laboratory. So I had sales, marketing, business development and national accounts. And um, I spent some time in Europe uh, there. So I, I moved to Paris uh, with Abbott Laboratories at that time, spent a couple of years there as well. Okay, so now you're getting more of that classical commercialization, and um, uh, you know, still with uh, you know, not not a lot of people who um, have your background, like as a physician or like familiar with the R and D, like like go over there. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like the other <laughs> other side of the house, and sometimes right. you know, people from one side look askance at the other. Um, how, what, what was your attitude about making that move? Why, why did that seem important for you to spend your time doing this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think you hit the nail on the head. I would say my experience has been just that, that many folks who are on uh, either in the corporate side of our business or on this, the scientific slash R&D side, Uh, definitely did and unfortunately I think still do look askance to the commercial side of this which I think is is a mistake Um, and it was definitely my experience as well I'll give you one one funny example Uh, so at Amgen so going back a little bit 
I my first commercial job was as a district manager. So I I won't bore you with the whole history behind that, but um, I got the opportunity to be a district manager in Chicago for the oncology business unit uh, at Amgen. And I can tell you, everyone I spoke to who was on the R&D side looked at me askance and was like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and so... <laughs> And, you know, and, and the reality was, is I wanted to learn our business from that vantage point. And the counsel I got um, at that time was there's no better way to understand sales and marketing and biopharma than going to the field. You need to understand the interface between physicians and these companies. And the way to do that is to be in front of these customers and to try to get them to prescribe your product. And that's what I did. And that was probably, it was probably two or three roles in my career that were the, the most formative experiences for me. That was definitely one of them. And, you know, ultimately, you know, if you're successful on that side of the house, you generate more revenue, which can be plowed back into the R&D side, enable the company to pursue more and more interesting leads and hopefully come up with more yep. valuable products. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's exactly right. Um, okay, so um, let's fast forward a little bit. You, you, uh, you're, you're, now you've kind of, uh, you, you got the sales and marketing thing going now. This is kind of your, your path. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about Atara, which was kind of your last stop before Cellevolve, because I want to ask you about Cellevolve. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was at Gilead and as you know, Gilead acquired Kite Pharma, um, which was obviously a big acquisition and one of the earliest innovators in cell therapy. So that was my first introduction to cell therapy. And I, I described that as when I got religion. Um, I really, really, you know, fell in love with really cell and gene by and large, but cell therapy specifically from that experience. Why was that? What what struck you about that? You know, it was, it was two things. It it almost is the embodiment of my passion of the combination of science and business because the clearly scientifically and the impact on patients is well chronicled and well understood. So we, we were clearly and are at the earliest chapters of a revolution in treating diseases with these new technologies. That was very clear from day one. The thing that was less clear, uh, I would say, to the, the broader space, but really hit me kind of quickly was that the commercial model for these therapeutics was different and that it required a new way of thinking. Uh, I, everyone knew that it was different. I don't think everyone appreciated it required a new way of thinking. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of folks were trying to apply, I would call historical models and perspectives to cell therapy early on. Uh, I think we've now figured out that that doesn't work. But at that time, Folks were thinking you could sort of do the same things you were doing before. Uh, it just happens to be a new product. And Can you elaborate on this a little bit, like how how it's different commercially, and mm-hmm. how and why that requires a different mindset. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I would say three things. I mean, first off, the the product itself, which we all know is different in how it's administered, how it's manufactured and how it's managed. And so those things were you know, fairly evident from day one. But the distribution is the part I think folks didn't quite realize was going to be challenging and required almost a different paradigm. So, you know, the whole cold chain logistics and, you know, moving Luco packs from one direction to another direction and ensuring that the chain of identity and chain of custody is all tight. Those are things that it's like an integration between the company that makes the product and the care team is much tighter than we have historically experienced. Yeah, it's and not a pill in a bottle that you order from the pharmacy and it's absolutely. like several steps removed. You don't, uh, somebody at Pfizer made that thing, but you don't know them or talk that's to them. Right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and the other part to that, Luke, is this bi-directional communication and data exchange. Right. So the level of integration between the company and the care team is basically unprecedented in our business. It's more like a medical device than it is from a traditional pharmaceutical. You know how a lot of the medical device you know, sales teams will be in surgeries, if you will, <laughs> trying to you know, teach the physician how to use the new device. This is more like that than it is than traditional pharma. You know, hearing you describe this situation reminds me of a previous guest on the show, Amy DeRoss of Vanetti. And she was talking about these early days of cell therapy when, you know, it was heady days. People were excited about the data and delivering this to a lot of people, but they were developing their own, well, their own in-house homebrew softwares to try to keep track of some of what you're talking about. And it's just like, after a while, people realized this is not working very well. This is not really what we do as a company. Maybe we could go to a third-party vendor like somebody like Vanetti. Yeah. Um, you, you, you were on the other side of this and you felt some of that pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Amy's a friend and I'm a fan. And so um, absolutely agree with her assessment of the situation. That's exactly right. Okay. Okay. So you're there at Gilead. They're, um, they're making, uh, to be fair, a long-term bet here on cell right. therapy in, in lots of different iterations. They've, it's come a little more clear in the years since. Um, but then let, just quickly, your next stop at Atara, the, working on off the shelf. Was that yep. part of the deal? That was part of the deal. So I went in, I was commercial employee number one, uh, chief commercial officer at Atara. And so I was tasked with building uh, the commercial organization and preparing to launch its first potential product uh, now called TabSale. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what was um, intriguing about uh, that opportunity and that product? Yeah, so I two things. So building an organization from scratch in a new area was clearly a very exciting challenge uh, to me. And, you know, I, I touched on some of the differences before. And this was an opportunity to construct a new organization that is specifically designed to commercialize cell therapies. And so uh, I was very, very excited about doing that. Um, got recruited by the, the founder and CEO of Atar, who's no longer there, Isaac C. Anover. Yeah. And, um, you know, and TabSale, uh, unfortunately, is not approved yet, but looks like it's headed in that direction. Um, but it was... 
you know, a novel off the shelf cell therapy that was going to treat a fairly rare condition of post-transplant lymphomas. Do you want to raise awareness of your company with the most innovative people in biotech? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. These in-depth, engaging conversations attract an audience full of scientific entrepreneurs and venture capitalists on the leading edge. The audience grew by 40% last year. For more information, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. You can find her contact information at TimmermanReport.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column that runs on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. At some point along the way, you got this realization that um, there was something bigger. You, you noticed something in the the marketplace that was beginning to emerge here for cell therapies. Yes, uh, there, there was a, there was a need. What, what was that? Yeah. So the the simple way to think about it, and this started to dawn on me during my time at Atara, in the sense that not just Atara, but all of the players in the ecosystem. We're still thinking about this using old paradigms. And, and I'll give you one specific example and then I'll elaborate. So one was like, oh, small biotech never commercializes in Europe. That was a very common statement I got from, frankly, everyone. Because Atara, at least at that time, it looked like tab cell might be approved in Europe first compared to the States, right? It's usually the reverse. And so, you know, everyone was just like, oh, this never happens. Like small biotech never commercialized in Europe. And, and after thinking about it and analyzing it a bit, I was like, I don't, I'm not sure that's appropriate for us. We should commercialize it in Europe. But I was leaning <laughs> against the trends, if you will, at that point. And that was just one of many. And so as I started to really have a lot of these conversations, think about building the team, think about the commercial strategy and frankly, the overall corporate strategy at Atara at, at that time, it was very clear that there was some blindness to what I thought was happening in the market, meaning that there were so many different cell therapies with different approaches, different technologies you know, off the shelf, autologous, different engineering approaches, gene manipulation, et cetera, et cetera. And no one was really, I would say, assessing the broad volume of things that were coming through. And we had to figure out how best to capitalize on all the variations of the cell therapies that were coming through. Because they're all a little different. Right. Um, and they're not exactly the same. And so I felt like that was a missed opportunity. That was number one. The second thing is back to this point I made before that commercialization of these programs were different than traditional pharma. And everyone sort of knew that from an intellectual perspective, but there were very few companies that were deploying themselves to make that a reality. That was the other 
opportunity I saw. This is one where the science was sprinting ahead at remarkable speed. I mean, 2017 was the first FDA approvals of the yep. Kite um, CAR-T and the Novartis CAR-T. So th- that's sort of like the big bang moment, if you will. And then, you know, we have we now have, what, more than a thousand open INDs for different cell yep. uh, and gene therapies, maybe 2,000? Yeah, that's right. I don't even know, but I mean, a whole lot of startups getting a whole lot of money, a whole lot of smart scientists working on this. And yet the business models that the the way people think about these things like sprouting up and maturing and eventually being delivered to patients in many ways is still stuck in older ideas like fully integrated biopharmaceutical model, the FIBCO model, or, you know, like you said, like, well, we don't commercialize in Europe um, uh, unless we're (laughs) a big partner or like a lot of um, uh, industry habits, which made sense in one realm, just don't exactly make, make some sense or don't scale as well. That's right. Yeah. I think the way we describe it is there, there's two concurrent revolutions that are happening. One is well chronicle, which is the bio revolution, cell and gene therapy is really the tip of the spear. The second one, which is less well chronicle in the biotech ecosystem, more so on the tech side, is what we describe as the democratization of innovation. So that means that there's new innovations are more broadly dispersed and generated by more new entrants in the ecosystem than ever before. And you combine that with the unique commercialization in cell therapy, and we see that as a huge opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my recent guests, Vanita Agarwala of Andreessen Horowitz, has talked about like this idea of, you know, an emerging division of labor in the industry. Um, And that and and that can be, you know, you can think of Vanetti in one sense, like, hey, we're going to take that software piece and provide that to a lot of different companies. You're thinking about commercialization. Correct. That you offer not just to one, you know, one company in house, but to a lot of other companies. That's right. um, In a way that can be scalable. Talk. Can you talk a little bit about like that, that founding concept for Cellevolve? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you just you just really articulated quite well. It, it really comes down to the bio revolution is at its earliest innings and that there are still a large number of scientific questions to be answered, uh, a number of scientific approaches that have yet to be validated. And therefore, collectively, there's a lot of work that we as an industry are doing scientifically. And obviously, I'm excited about that. I'm, you know, very enthusiastic. I, I really appreciate the fact that there's been a lot of new company creation, lots of investment, et cetera, et cetera. But what that means is that there's still scientific work to be done. On the flip side, because those scientific questions are so difficult, these companies and these innovators don't frankly have the wherewithal, the bandwidth and the interest appropriately to focus on the other side of the value system, i.e. late stage development and commercialization. And so what we have found to date is a lot of folks are really interested in what we're doing because of the scientific problems that they're working on. They're like, hey, I'm solving the science part. If I could find a partner like Cellevolve that can help me with the late stage development and commercialization part, that's very attractive to me. 
And that's what we've been seeing and hearing and experiencing thus far. Okay, so that represents, I think, something of a shift in mindset because, I, you know, coming back to, you know, years ago and attitudes were, you know, we're focused on the science. We got to figure out our clinical development plan, make the best product we can. And, and then maybe later we'll think more seriously yeah. about, you know, the commercial launch, oh, maybe six months prior or, you yeah. know, well, maybe we'll just sell the company to Merck and let them worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but but um, th- th- there wasn't that, you know, tight integration between right. the early R&D and, you know, real commercial strategic thinking. So why do you think, well, why would startups in the early innings working on their R&D want to talk to you and a team of people who, you know, bring this commercial mindset to, you know, a fledgling enterprise? Yeah, it's so it's, it's startups and academics, and I'll elaborate on that in a second. But I, it, it really is twofold. So, you know, it's a theme that we've, touched on now a few times is a different paradigm. There are so many new companies and so many new therapeutics being developed that there is no way that traditional big pharma can consume and a meaning acquire license partner can consume the volume of companies and products that are out there. Full stop. It's too many. So maybe you want to think about this being an independent company for the long haul. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And so so therefore, the other cell therapy companies outside of Cellevolve, they're seeing what we're seeing, right? They're like, hey, if the old model was we'll develop it up to a point and get bought by Merck, that option is not that it doesn't exist. It's just going to be difficult because of the sheer number of companies that are available to be acquired slash partner slash licensed with, right? Um, so, so therefore, they have to start thinking about the longer term. So then, hey, how do we actually think about commercialization and late stage development, et cetera, et cetera, whereas historically that, you know, you didn't have to worry about it potentially. So that's where we're finding people are saying, hey, it looks like we got to start thinking about this. And working with a company like Cellevolve is an option. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, what sort of uh, pushback do you get, if any? Um, is, it, is it just traditional thoughts like, now, oh, you know, we'll get to that later? Is that kind of what you're up against? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's definitely that that classic thinking like, you know, we'll worry about commercialization, you know, at the last minute, <laughs> you know, which is, I think, an unfortunate um, view that the industry has had, especially small biotech. Uh, and frankly, I think destructive. Uh, but that's just my opinion. But um, unfortunately, folks still have that point of view. And so that is a very, very classic uh, pushback. On the Can other you give hand, an example of, of like why it makes sense to engage earlier. I mean, I can think of, you know, if you let's say you really ought to make some small modification to the product itself or your manufacturing process, you know, it's better to do it early <laughs> rather than yeah, later. I, absolutely. I mean, the, I'll give you the, the most obvious recent example is just the sheer number of CD19 CAR T's that are in development. Right. So, you know, had companies incorporated earlier perspective on the competitive intensity for a specific indication, they might have made different strategic choices. 
I see. Right? And so, and, and because cell therapy is so competitive, back to my comment on the number of uh, therapeutics in development, uh, both preclinical and clinical, you have to start thinking about, you know, what I would call classic commercial perspectives on these things earlier. Because, you know, as simple as what indication should you go for? <laughs> How many products might end up approved around the same time your therapeutic is approved? What market share do you think you're going to capture? You know, will you actually bring a differentiated product to market at a time that will be valuable? You need to start thinking about that perspective as one of several earlier and earlier and earlier in the product development for all of cell and gene therapy, but definitely in cell therapy. How might some of those choices you make influence, you know, the pricing that you're able to command someday? Absolutely. Pricing that you're able to command, where you deploy your resources, you know, do you spend another 20, 30 million dollars on developing the 17 CD19 CAR T, or maybe you go to another novel area? Interesting. So um, when did you uh, take the plunge and kind of work up the courage or the gumption or whatever it was to uh, like to dive all in on this and start um, a company? Yeah. So it was I, I left the Tara in late 2019 and had the idea as I was walking out the door there and talked to a few folks, just more concept um, about, you know, what became Cell Evolve and you know, I was expecting folks to be like, oh, that will never work, you know, or this is a bad idea for the following reasons. And I, I, I did not get that. Uh, frankly, when I talked to, I got it <laughs> a handful of times, but the overwhelming majority was like, I think you have something here. And so I decided to form the company in March of 2020 and started talking to investors. And you'll note that March of 2020 was the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> Great time to start a company, huh? Great time to start a company. And and frankly, several of my advisors said, hey, maybe you want to pause this, right, and, and see what happens. Um, but the world paused for me, uh, meaning that when I was talking to investors, you know, universally towards the end of March uh, and through late summer, they basically said, um, hey, we're not making any new investments. We're on hold. Uh, and so, so therefore I was on hold and I continued to work on the idea and the concept, you know, with the hope that the markets would reopen. And, uh, unfortunately they did. So what were you thinking in terms of fundraising strategy? Like how much did you think you needed and did you need a big VC round or not really? Yeah, I uh, it it changed, and you I'm sure hear this from many entrepreneurs, right? It's uh, constantly evolving your thinking. I had I had one product that I was um, confidentially trying to in license, and the deal terms for that first product, um, you know, were were meaningful. It was you know more than a million dollars, and so therefore I needed a more substantial initial round of financing, which is what I pursued. But what I quickly learned is that a lot of the VCs were less interested in this particular product and frankly, just didn't see the promise in the way that I saw it. 
And so I struggled with financing that particular in licensing deal. And so I, I pivoted. So I had several other potential collaborations that I was working on, but they were lower priority and, and I shifted my priorities. And that one was more attractive to the VC community, number one, but it was a smaller amount of capital that I needed to get started. And, uh, and that's where we ended up landing and being successful. And so that was my, the QIMR collaboration for the virus specific T-cells. And ultimately we raised a total of $6 million. Okay. Can, can you say a little bit about like how your business model is supposed to work? Like what's your, your proposition to um, your partners? Yeah. So we, what we do is we are striking traditional licensing deals with a few bells and whistles to them. So our, our licensing deals have the following characteristics. So first, it's usually multiple products. So we're not doing kind of the more traditional single asset deal. We typically do two or more, number one. Number two, it has a research component to it that the principal investigator or the scientist, we continue to support him or her in their work going forward. So we continue to support, you know, discovery of novel products or novel innovations. So that's number two. Number three is we tend to lean on their GMP manufacturing, at least for early clinical development. And so, you know, phase one, possibly phase two, but typically phase one, phase one. So, you know, so those are the kind of partnerships that we're doing. And the reason it works quite well is because that enables the scientific innovator to continue to do what they love, right? Discovering new products, you know, developing new innovations and inventions. And we take on the development from phase two on. So, you know, we do the phase two development, pivotal studies, we do late stage manufacturing, and then ultimately commercialize the product beyond that. And so that splitting of responsibility, you mentioned this earlier, this whole division of labor, that structure seems to be working quite well for the partners that we've engaged with thus far. Okay, so in the early going, it sounds like clinical development is going to be a pretty important piece that you bring to the table. Um, how, how big is your team? So there are seven of us now. We're recruiting a few more folks. And so we'll probably be 10 to 12 in the next few months. Okay. So still pretty sm- small, pretty still small. Mean. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you don't, um, you said you raised $6 million and I, um, I want to come back to that in a second, but you're, um, you, you, so you don't need to build a whole lot of brick and mortar, like you're not going to do a custom manufacturing, you know, nope. uh, facility that can make all different kinds of exotic cell therapies. I mean, that's, that's, it. that's infrastructure that your partners already have. That's correct. Yeah. So we, we are deploying what we call a dual manufacturing strategy. Uh, so first and foremost, you just hit one of the most important elements. As of now, we are not putting steel into the ground. We have signed a partnership with Resilience, uh, who I know you're well aware of. And Resilience is our preferred manufacturing partner. Uh, They also invested in the company. And so Resilience will handle all of the late stage clinical and commercial manufacturing for CellEvolve. Early stage manufacturing comes from our partners, our academic partners thus far. 
So could you say a little bit about resilience and why it's important that you're partnered up with them? Yeah, it's uh, so resilience, you know, thus far has, has been great and I'm really excited about our collaboration. You know, it was very clear to me early on that I did not want to build my own manufacturing capacity. And, and the reason for that is I felt like the CDMO space was maturing sufficiently. It's still early, to be fair, but it's maturing in a way that we felt we could tap into some partners to manufacture for us. And the thing that was really great about resilience is, you know, resilience is probably the most well-funded startup in our business, right? I mean, obviously they launched with $800 million and, uh, and they've been building their company. They've been acquiring a number of facilities. And so the startup, the timing, their platform interests in advanced therapeutics writ large, but definitely in cell therapy was a perfect partner for us because of our approach, right? So we're collaborating on getting the products, if you will, or the product candidates. And then Resilience has a platform to manufacture advanced therapeutics and ultimately, we commercialize them together. So for, for, for me, it was really a match made in heaven early on. And I identified them as a potential partner for us uh, quite early in their development. And you, you know how these things go. You never knew it was going to work. But ultimately, uh, they saw it the way that I saw it as well. And uh, ultimately, we end up signing the deal. So if I'm imagining myself as, you know, a bright young investigator at a place like Penn, I've got some idea for a new cell therapy. Uh, I've raised some venture capital. Um, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to look in a few places to a few kind of, I don't know if service providers is the right term. A lot that has yep. uh, some connotations to it. But like, you're going to look to resilience to help make the stuff. You're going to yeah. look to Cell Evolve to, you know, help you commercially strategy, you know, roll this out. You're going to look right. to Venetti to like help manage your, you know, supply chain logistics with your software. There might be a few others. Is right. that is that the way, rather than trying to like, you know, get everything under your own roof, recruit all the subject experts in each of these areas and, uh, you know, keep everything like to yourself. Right, right. And, and look, for, for an academic, it's, it, it's a perfect match because essentially commercializing a product for an academic innovator or researcher is generally off mission, right? I mean, they want to discover and develop at least early stage programs, right? That's what they're passionate about and frankly, what they're good at. And they are less interested, potentially, depending on the person, but generally less interested in the later stage development and commercial side of our business. That's just not necessarily what these folks are interested in, which is fine, which is great for us, number one. Number two, it goes back to this market disconnect I talked about in the sense that there's a lot of innovations being discovered and produced on a daily basis and there's just not enough interested and capable late stage developers and commercializers, right? So there's a market disconnect. And then last but not least, it's a perfect synergy of interests. If you go back to what I described as how we structure the deals, we continue to support 
the scientific innovator on an ongoing basis and on a go forward basis. So he or she can continue to do what they love and what they're interested in while we support them financially, we support them strategically. And ultimately, if things go according to plan, we'll develop a product together. So you're not being too greedy. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, the, you know, the deals are favorable, hopefully to both parties is a win-win. And uh, what we have found to date is that structure and that sell slash message is compelling. Now, Daryl, I want to ask you one thing, a little sensitive. Um, you mentioned up at the top, you're African-American biotech entrepreneur. You've been out raising money for a while. Raising money is a grind. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say no, can take a toll on one's self-confidence <laughs> no matter who you are. But I wonder, you know, ha- have you had any experiences that you'd like to share maybe about, I don't know, being underestimated or overlooked or mistreated? I mean, and I ask this not, because like to try to provoke some kind of outrage or anything, but mostly just to help people understand maybe what it's like to walk in another man's shoes. Yeah, no, I I appreciate the question. And, you know, I would say you used a good word. I think it's more underestimated is probably what my experience uh, has been disproportionately. No, no one's been outright disrespectful or said anything inappropriate, fortunately. Um, It's more in this, you know, underestimated category. A lot of the questions that I get, which they would ask any entrepreneur, like, why you, right? And why do you think you're capable of doing this? But, you know, there's a, a little bit of a tone to the question at times that implies like, you know, I just don't believe you. I don't think you can do this despite, you know, your experience and your pedigree and the things you've done in the past. Like, I'm just not buying, right? Like for some reason, you know, hint, hint, uh, for some reason, I'm just not convinced. And I I definitely have experienced that. um, And, you know, I expect to unfortunately continue to experience that. Um, But, you know, I just keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's also interesting, too, that you started this, you know, around the time uh, wasn't long after when the George Floyd uh, incident happened. And a lot of people, including in this industry, had um, something of a, a racial awakening. Um, yes. And bi- biotech companies have, in many cases, stepped up and said they want to do more. And that, yes. you know, covers a lot of ground, you know, hiring people, promoting people, recruiting board members recruiting people, a diverse population in your clinical trials. Yes. What, what are you seeing? Are, are you seeing like genuine like progress on a lot of these fronts? And, and maybe what would be, you know, a thing or two that you think could uh, still leaves a lot of room for improvement? Yeah, I, so I am seeing some, uh, you know, some early signs of genuine progress. Um, I, I'll, I'll comment on, one company. So as you know, I'm on the board of Passage Bio, uh, which is a gene therapy company in Philadelphia. Uh, And, you know, and Bruce Goldsmith is, you know, I think he's doing a wonderful job specifically in this area, Um, you know, from hiring as well as board members, you know, as part of the reason I joined the board, because we started having conversations about diversifying the, the, the board 
had passage early on around the time of the George Floyd uh, unfortunate situation. So, you know, so I just highlight that as a very positive example. And I think there are many things I've seen from other companies, but Bruce in particular, I think has done a wonderful job on diversifying uh, the company and, and the board in particular. So I think that's been great. Um, you know, what I, I haven't seen as much as I was hoping for, and I will tell you, many of my friends have asked me, not only around the George Floyd time, but even still to this day, you know, hey, what would be the one thing you would recommend that I do that could make a difference? And I always say the same thing. And I say, give somebody a job. You know, don't, you know, all these other things are helpful, whether it be, you know, community activity and volunteer things, that's one example. Those are very important. And I don't mean to denigrate those. And I, and I, you know, recommend that folks continue to do that, you know, when it's appropriate, uh, as we are at Celebov. But the thing that I think has the most meaningful impact is talent giving somebody a job and helping someone in their career. And what I mean by that, that could be a promotion, that could be a new hire, uh, whatever it may be. But that's where you could make a very, very significant difference in our business and in someone's life. You know, hearing you say that, I immediately start thinking about young people. There are yep. a lot of young people in this country um, who, you know, are, are not really uh, exposed to the amazing things happening in the biotech industry uh, and not really aware of how yes. they could uh, make a contribution if, you know, they're a high school student or a college student and really want to study on this stuff. Wow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to learn and do and grow. Um, and that, you know, maybe there's opportunities for internships, um, lots of programs um, to help on ramp. Uh, yeah, absolutely. On we, um, this is a quick plug for, for what we're doing here. So we have an initiative It's called change enabled at Sullivan is a new initiative. And one of our most significant things we're doing is working on STEM talent and the talent pipeline and mentorship. So, you know, that's one of several things we're doing here. Now, granted, we're a small company, we're a startup, but you know, uh, no time like the present to try to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, last thing, Daryl, I saw on your bio that you say you like reading nonfiction books. What's a good book that you've read lately that you would recommend to the listeners? Ooh, oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I just started reading, uh, and this is, is not a new book, um, but I've, I've heard really good recommendations about this one. It's called Let My People Go Surfing by the founder of Patagonia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, uh, one that I, Yvonne Chenard, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I just started listening to that uh, a few days ago. And that's, uh, so far, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued. Um, so that would be my, my immediate recommendation. What's the key uh, message that grabbed you uh, early on? You know, business, business can make a difference. That's the headline effectively, that, yeah. you know, you know, business clearly this whole concept that, you know, business is only stakeholder or shareholders, you know, that that's dead. And I think most of the progressive minds in business writ large, but definitely in healthcare and biotech, I mean, we probably weren't 
you know, advocates of that position even from day one. But I think it's very clear that that perspective is dead. You know, business should be a force for good. And, you know, we have multiple stakeholders. And that's the core message of this book. And frankly, how we're building and running Sellovolf. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great uh a great point to make. This is an industry that, yes, does have shareholders, but that's one constituency along with employees, with with uh, patients, with communities in which you live and work. Absolutely. Um, and, and uh, you know, if you're successful at this, you're going to come up with uh, with products that are going to benefit people across all, all of those constituencies. Yeah, 100%. Um, well put. Thank you so much, Daryl, for joining me today on The Long Run. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.